This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a closer examination of the new left in Latin America, what some call the pink tide. We'll have the latest on politics from Nicaragua and Venezuela. But first, Lydia Bayoud has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Peru's ministers of defense and interior both resigned this week after sharp criticism over a failed operation against the Shining Path. At least nine soldiers and security officers died in the Peruvian jungle after an ambush by the Maoist rebels. One wounded soldier made it out alive while public outcry raged over a father left to retrieve his son's body on his own. Congressman Michael Ruteco and other members of Congress have voted to censure the ministers. I saw this as having political context in my opinion because of a complete abandonment of responsibility in the actions of the police forces. The government has clashed with the Shining Path guerrilla movement since the 1980s. Today, operations focus more on the group's narco-trafficking rather than its political aims. Mexican authorities found 18 mutilated bodies this week in Jalisco State in southwestern Mexico. Authorities say they may have been victims of violence between the Zeta and Sinaloa drug cartels. The police who found the bodies say they were so badly mutilated they've been unable to ascertain their gender, much less their identities. Security analysts believe the Zetas have become Mexico's largest cartel in more than half the country and appears to be taking over areas traditionally controlled by the Sinaloa group. More than 50,000 people have died in drug-related violence in Mexico since 2006. Authorities also found 23 victims in the Mexican border town of Nuevo Laredo last week. Nine of the bodies were hanging from a bridge just south of the Texas border, while authorities found another 13 decapitated bodies across the city. Authorities say the heads from those bodies were later found in an abandoned cooler near a government building. A military spokesman stated that the victims may have been members of a drug cartel, but that it was too early to speculate. Reports say a message was found with the hanging victims, implicating them in the bombing of a police station in April. The Mexican state of Veracruz has witnessed its own attacks, this time against the press. The attorney general of Veracruz recently confirmed the identities of three photojournalists and another media employee whose dismembered bodies were found on May 3rd. Again, authorities suspect the killings are the work of drug cartels. A media rights representative in Mexico stated that he believes one of the victims, Gabriel Juge, was on a blacklist against journalists covering Mexico's crime wars. This brings the total number of journalists killed in Veracruz alone up to eight in the past ten months. Reporters Without Borders say Veracruz is among the top ten most dangerous locations for journalists in the world. Critics say security measures put in place by the government have been mostly ineffective in curbing violence against journalists. News directors warned the reporters not to attend the funerals of the murdered journalists for fear of more reprisals. So far, none of the murders have been resolved. Police in Honduras report Alfredo Villatoro, a senior journalist for one of the country's leading radio networks, was kidnapped this week. Officials say he was taken while on his way to work in the capital, Tegucigalpa. Villatoro had reported that he was receiving death threats prior to his abduction. Honduras has the world's worst murder rate and is among the worst for violence against journalists who are threatened by drug gangs and other organized crime. Police have arrested three suspects so far. Thousands of protesters in the streets of La Paz, Bolivia, clashed with security forces earlier this week. 
The protesters were marching in a three-day strike in solidarity with Bolivian health workers, who have been leading their own protest against a proposed change to a government labor law. Miners who joined the marches set off dynamite in downtown La Paz. Leaders of the health workers' strike are demanding that President Evo Morales repeal a law that would increase work hours without increasing what they view as appropriate compensation. Radio and TV Martí strongly criticized the leader of Cuba's Catholic Church, Cardinal Jaime Ortega, in an editorial on its website. The director of the U.S. government-operated networks, Carlos García Pérez, accuses Cardinal Ortega of being, and these are the words from the editorial, a lackey to Cuba's communist regime. Analysts say that the editorial may be construed as an official opinion of the United States government. Radio Antivi Martí receives U.S. taxpayer funds and coordinates its messages to the Cuban communities with the State Department. Some say the editorial may undermine Ortega and the Catholic Church's position on the island. Ortega is a controversial figure. Some praise him for brokering protection for political activists detained by the government. Others say he did not push hard enough in bringing the regime's human rights abuses to the agenda when the Pope visited the island a few weeks ago. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. This week, catching up with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Last week, the last founding member of the Sandinista Directorate, Tomas Borje, was laid to rest and memorialized in Managua. So joining us via Skype to discuss the current shape of politics in Nicaragua is Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue. Welcome back to Latin Pulse, Manuel. Thank you. Manuel, you were in Nicaragua for much of the ceremony surrounding Borges' death. Is there significance to his passing, or does he merely represent a symbol from the Cold War era? Well, I think there is a significance in Nicaragua uh, in terms that he was basically one of the lasting living members of the FSLN, the, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, and his 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 profile um, was considered to be basically uh, among the hardcore members of the FSLN who saw the importance of renewing uh, a Sandinista party um, after the the end of the revolution, and he represented a mild segment of the dissenting faction of the FSLN who who wanted to improve more participation within the party but it was not able to do that. So his death um, has a, the symbolism on the one hand of a person who represents basically the, the National Liberation Fronts of the 1960s, 70s um, in the Americas but also he is the character of political reform that was not accomplished in the country. You say political reform not accomplished in the country, but yes. the Sandinistas are in power now, and Daniel Ortega, the current president, is on his second term. Is there a possibility that this reform will ever happen, or is this a different Sandinista party? I think... The Sandinista Party had, has had at least two chances to reform itself, one in 1994 and one more or less 10 years later in, in the mid-2000, prior to the 2006 election that gave Ortega the victory. In both cases, what prevailed was the, the Ortega faction. Um, the first one in the 1990s was a, a stronger faction that represented different sectors, including people like Bayardo Arce and Tomás Borges. 
um, they were able to basically have an overwhelming support from the cadres of the FSLN. But as time went by and Ortega grew in strength, he alienated different groups, one including his own brother, Humberto Ortega. Another person that he began, began to alienate was Thomas Borges. Thomas Borges wanted to have more participation of the Sandinista youth, for example, to open up the spaces outside of what was the, the Comandante group. Um, and it was not something that was heard. He had significant uh, tensions with Rosario Murillo, the wife of uh, Ortega. In fact, um, since after the election, in every commemoration of the anniversary of the revolution, um, the, the role of Tomás Borges gradually was minimized to the point that he didn't even appear to several of the celebrations past 2006. Um, so the, the significance of, of having a political reform within the party after the Ortega-Murillo faction, let's say, has gained so much power, um, is, is to some extent crucial yet um, unaccomplished. And at this point, I think the strategy of Ortega is basically try to retain as much power as possible and find who will be his successor, regardless of the possibilities of a change. Um, and he's using different tactics, different strategies to do so. Some are the old-fashioned ones, like keeping the opposition divided and selecting a person from the opposition that would be the power broker for a negotiated pact. Thank you for updating us on what happened politically to Tomas Borges and the party. And, and I want to get back to President Ortega and, and what is happening with him here in a, in a moment. But the end for Borges, it was more or less a semi-retirement, was it not? He was the ambassador of Peru, but very much outside of the power structure, or do you see it differently? No, no, he, um, originally it was a partial retirement and a way to continue his influence, but clearly it came out basically by 2005, 2006, that his role uh, was diminishing as Murillo was becoming more influential. And so he tried to exert the um, his presence, but eventually I think he gave up. Um, why did uh, Tomás Borges gave up? I think it's a matter of generational changes, that he found himself with less strength than the other groups. And second, that his own personal life, he, he, see, he saw himself as staying in Peru as his last um, presence within the FSLN and representing Nicaragua. So he was sidestepped to some extent, and he didn't fight uh, for retaining the influence he had. But his influence, I mean, in, in general, has been diminishing for the past 10 years. And I think what the Ortegas did was just to make sure that he will stay on a second level. The discussion often in Managua is about a co-presidency, that Daniel Ortega shares the presidency with his wife, um, there's criticism of this. Um, but you were on the program in the fall before the re-election and predicted that President Ortega in the second term would be um, more or less uh, what uh, the first President Bush promised to America, a kinder, gentler Daniel Ortega. Is it too early for us to see whether that part of your prediction is true? 
Well, at this point, that is what he's aiming at. <clears throat> you have two, two strategies. One is to keep a soft profile, uh, not to be the same president of the first administration, be less pervasive in his use of political force, for example. And he is basically, at this point, negotiating with the opposition, with a new opposition, because one of the byproducts of this electoral process where Ortega won was that there were no um, power brokers left from the political elites that led the opposition for this process, this election. But um, so it, it was up to Ortega to a large extent to identify who would be the legitimate uh, opposition leader. And that's what he's been doing. He has found Mr. Montelegre to be that power broker, that legitimate power broker. On the other hand, he sees that his, his influence, his dependence on Venezuela, for example, may not be last, uh, long-lasting. And he also sees that within the FSLN, the party is becoming more fragmented for different reasons. One is for ideological differences. The, the Ortega families basically are a populist party, and there are sectors within the FSLN who see that this is not um, right into the agenda, uh, the ideological agenda. Then there are other fragmented issues. For example, there is a, a need to replenish the party with younger cohorts, with people from the student movement, for example, the universities and the population at large. And that has been a slow process that has been co-opted by Murillo. She handles basically the integration and the recruitment of new cadres. So that, that strategy basically is putting the, the control of the party in her hands and is making the situation a little bit of a contradiction. On the one hand, you have a president who wants to be conciliatory, who wants to have within the national context uh, a reconciliatory view, uh, consensus building approach. Um, on the other hand, he wants to make sure with his wife that his um, narrow circle of power continues to be in the same position in the longer term. Um, there is no discussion of, for example, staying in power another, uh, after this um, term. I doubt that that will be the case. But what remains a question mark is whether he will try to make sure that his legacy of this populist government is continued by someone close to him, which could be his wife, could be one of his children, or could be someone closer to him. And that is one of the key question marks at this point. So um, the Ortegas may be building a family dynasty in the presidency. Isn't this an interesting parallel to Nicaragua's history? Well, I think it's uh, definitely uh, an interesting parallel, if you can say. You know, in history, we always say that History is not irrepetible and is not reversible. Yet, in this particular case, um, there are so many common trends with, between Daniel Ortega and like some of the Somoza family. Um, of course, the, the main issue is um, why is it that Nicaragua repeats its mistakes over and over again? And there is something to do with the political culture of the society that sees in Daniel Ortega something of a, of a, a representation of the nation. That is someone who has a strong ego and wants to keep influencing society 
on a regular basis. And perhaps that's what Nicaraguans like. They see themselves in Daniel Ortega as someone who keeps this caudillo image alive. Well, with that, we thank you, Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue. Join us today via Skype on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Pleasure. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we return our gaze to Venezuela. President Hugo Chavez is back from Cuba where he's been receiving cancer treatments for most of the year. And this year is an election year in his country. Some have questioned Chavez's ability to govern and campaign given his health. Joining us via Skype to discuss the current state of politics in Venezuela is Michael McCarthy of Johns Hopkins University. He served as a visiting scholar at the Universidad Central of Venezuela and as a Fulbright and Inter-American Foundation Scholar in Caracas. Michael McCarthy, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thanks very much, Rick. How are you doing? Great. What are your insights on Chavez and the state of politics in Venezuela? Well, I think that um, President Chavez is is quite sick. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that anymore. And that um, he has not been able of late, and by late I mean the past month or so, to really present his normal uh, image of a kind of invincible uh, leader and defender of um, of 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 kind of the underclass in Venezuela because of his illness. And so I guess what I'm suggesting is that there's a possibility that the sympathy um, bump that he got in terms of his levels of public support and opinion polls um, might dissipate uh, because now it's not just a question of, um, you know, how long it'll take for him to get over. It's whether or not he will in fact survive. Um, so there's a possible change in terms of uh, that might be a possible game changer in terms of his level of popularity. Um, at the same time, the opposition candidate uh, to uh, President Chavez in the elections, Enrique Capriles Radonsky, um, has been unable to really uh, boost his image and his popularity uh, since he uh, was elected uh, in primaries held and organized by the opposition. Uh, as the leader of the opposition. And so Capriles um, has not really impressed since becoming the opposition's candidate, and he still has a long way to go to be a candidate who could win a majority vote uh, in October. While Chavez was in Cuba and since, uh, he, he seems to be keeping his social media account or someone who's keeping his social media account going with trying to project this particular image, uh, causing people to talk about whether a president could govern via Twitter. I, I'm wondering, you mentioned the fact that he's quite sick. Um, we've known that this cancer is has been a problem for him since the fall or late summer, but what leads you to this, this sense of the sickness taking this 
quite of a downturn. This has been going on now for almost a year, right? Since he's been diagnosed, it's clear. Uh, it's important to point out. So in the initial stages, there there have been a number of, apparently there have been a number of different treatments given to Chavez um, to help him manage this cancer and manage it as a sitting president, right? To not actually sort of take a leave of absence or sabbatical, but to do it while um, serving as a sitting president. And apparently uh, steroids were used uh, in heavy dosages in the beginning. And this... Um, allowed his body to be physically capable of doing certain things like giving eight or nine hour speeches, which he did at the Venezuelan State of the Union not so long ago, that sort of beat back some of the rumors that he was on his deathbed. Um, however, then things took a turn for the worse, and he had to go back to Cuba to go under the knife again. Um, and subsequent to that new um new operation when a new kind of um, break was found around the, the, the tumor area in his stomach, uh, there's been an assumption that he will not be receiving steroids any longer because other doctors have argued that that was a very risky strategy and potentially debilitating one. And so as a result, he hasn't been out in public um, in the sort of direct encounters that, that the Venezuelan public is accustomed to. And so this has an important, I think, impact in terms of the way people sort of process this this health this health situation. Because, um, well, well, Venezuelans are are used to the idea now of Chavez kind of doing as he pleases. Uh, there is an important difference to him doing as he pleases via Twitter, um, as opposed to doing as he pleases. Um, in a kind of public, directly, uh, in a in a interpersonally public kind of fashion, in that sense. So um, I'm not sure Twitter really uh, cuts the mustard in that regard. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the issue of doing what he pleases. Recently on this program, we had guests talking about the left in Latin America, and they characterized uh, President Chavez, among other presidents in in the region, as being dictators or authoritarian. What's your view as someone who has worked with grassroots organizations there in Venezuela and has quite a bit of experience in Venezuela? Is Hugo Chavez really a dictator? The answer is that he's not a dictator by any um, obvious measure of uh, competitive elections being the basis upon which one is called a president or elected president or a dictator. Uh, there's a separate question, however, as to whether or not the man embraces a vision of democracy that would be compatible with uh, what is commonly or what I personally understand to be the meaning of democracy. Um, in that sense, we could get into a debate about whether or not democracy has one or multiple forms. And I think the answer is that the latter is the case. However, there still are boundaries uh, uh, for what is and what is not democratic in that regard. But to the specific question of whether or not um, President Chavez is a dictator, my answer is simply no, he's, he's not a dictator. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a broader democratic context in which elections take place. Um, there are, I think, legitimate questions to be raised about the quality of those elections in terms of their fairness. But I think that um, under quality or less than optimal quality 
elections do not in of themselves uh, make the democratic pro- in, entirely undermine the democratic process per se. So, some some people have used the term guided democracy to describe Venezuela, a few of these other areas where we may have autocratically tinged presidents in democratic systems. Yeah. But I'm glad you've brought back us to elections. Are you saying that, that you don't think that these elections will be fair? When we talk about elections, we talk about the context as being free and fair. Um, that means... Uh, on the one hand, that inclusion in the process must be unconditional and people must be able to vote anonymously without fear of repercussion. And by fair, we mean that there must be um, a real possibility based on the conditions for the government in power to lose. That's the sort of baseline understanding of free and fair. Within that context, where within those general boundaries, there's a lot of there, there's you know varying shades of gray, so to speak. So in terms of the the um, the freeness, there are questions about whether or not, um, or the opposition has raised questions about whether or not their uh, the the their right to vote against the government is respected in the sense of them going unpunished for voicing their preferences publicly. Um, and then in terms of the fairness context, um, there's a, this question of state resources, um, which are presumably uh, public and not the government's private property, being used uh, on behalf of the Chavez re-election campaign. So there we're talking, for example, about the use of propaganda um, the forcing or encouraging, the strong encouraging of state employees to attend marches on behalf of the president's re-election campaign, and the use of money from the state oil company, PDVSA, to fund um, President Chavez's campaign, and as well, the, the question of state media and supposed neutrality. Are we headed to a crisis in Venezuela, as you said earlier, that the opposition candidate Enrique Capriles is is not um, seen as a strong candidate, but yet you have um, a strong sitting president who may be headed to um, to a place where he can't govern or or he may be dead. Um, is this a crisis situation? Well, I mean, there's crisis is always sort of slow bubbling and then sort of erupts in one way or another, or is is clearly brought out to the the surface in terms of a hard boil um, when there are flashpoints, um, and there's 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 little question that that Chavez passing uh, onto uh, the land above us would produce a kind of crisis situation in terms of extreme uncertainty about what the transition strategy or what the transition would entail in Venezuelan politics. And, and, and that uncertainty would be at least on, I would say, three levels. Uh, one, who would immediately succeed Chavez within his movement? And, to and no have, real successor on the horizon here, yes? Uh, well, I, there have been three different people kicked around as names to be his successor. Currently, the foreign minister is in vogue, but it's been changing almost on a month-to-month basis in the past three to six months. 
The second important question is, and it's just as important, is how would the armed forces react? Um, and then the third question uh, is how the opposition would react, and the opposition and then the U.S. government. But I don't think the U.S. government really has too large of a role to play in the Venezuelan situation because it still kind of has egg on its face for its role in the 2002 coup when it was seen widely, along with the Spanish government, as tacitly supporting the aborted coup effort um, uh, in which Chavez was removed and then brought back to office in the course of 72 hours. Well, thank you, Michael McCarthy at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. Join us today via Skype on Latin Pulse. You're welcome. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>